You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. So this morning we are going to be discussing the topic of the preeminence of Christ, meaning the firstness, the supremacy, um, Christ's lordship over all things, and we're going to do that in Colossians 1. Uh, but before we start, I'd like to say that I've, I've long since believed that there's one question that I think is the most important question um, we as human beings have to deal with in a post-first century world, and that is what do we do with the person of Jesus? Um, because you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that there's any other figure in all of history that's been more influential. Um, for 2,000 years and, and still going, we've had millions upon millions upon millions of people um, claiming things about Jesus that, quite frankly, are absurd. Um, They've claimed that Jesus was the God of the universe. They've claimed that he rose physically from death. They've claimed that he's the only way to have any relationship with the God of the universe. And if these things are true, and if we have thousands of manuscript evidence attesting to things like this, then, and we don't wrestle with that question, uh, A, we're just being intellectually foolish, and and B, we're, we're taking a risk of missing out on something very big. And here at Sojourn, we would say that if you don't engage with that question, that you are, in fact, missing out on something very big. Um, And so every week here, you hear the phrase, at Sojourn, we're all about Jesus. You heard Reed say it, and if you've been here for any length of time, that's our refrain every week. Um, And so this morning, I really want to unpack through Scripture very basically um, who we at Sojourn believe Jesus to be, who who he is, what he's done, and who we are as a response to that. Um, Because if we're going to be all about a first century homeless Jewish rabbi, then we really need to know why. And so if you're in this neighborhood and you haven't really engaged with Sojourn, um, we would like like for you to be here to hear this um, so that there's not any misconception of what we're about, what we're trying to do in this neighborhood. Uh, We are very simply trying to make much of Jesus and very little of ourselves. Um, and so we, before we dive into the scripture, I'd ask that you'd pray for me. I know that I need it, and so I'm going to pray, so join me. Um, Lord, we come before you humbled uh, by your goodness, by your sovereignty, um, by your authority over all of creation. We're humbled by that. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come this morning with wisdom, with your truth. We know, God, that you are a God who hears your people cry and you respond with grace. And so we cry to you for help this morning in understanding, in belief, and in obedience. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would make yourself known this morning. Uh, that many people would, would call you Lord, would call you Savior, and, and would ultimately worship you as God. And so as we open the scriptures, let us be faithful to them, Lord. Uh, let us not try to play games with them that aren't there or draw conclusions that aren't there. Uh, but let us simply come before your scripture humbly, that we might know you in truth, because knowing you in truth is far better than creating some image of you in in our minds that we might want to believe in. Uh, So make yourself known this morning, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So um, first, we're going to be in John 1, and then we'll go to Colossians. So we'll start in verse 1. We'll go through the first few verses and then skip to 14. So if you want to take a minute to get there. Um, John is, is maybe my favorite gospel because it leaves no room for you to, to make claims about Jesus like, oh, well, he was just a good moral teacher. 
or oh, he was just some powerful prophet, or oh, maybe he was just a spiritually enlightened being. Um, John's very clear that the purpose he wrote this gospel is that people would know that Jesus is the only true son of God and that he is in fact God and should be worshiped as such. So when we read John, we're kind of left with the option of believing that or calling Jesus a lunatic, which is really the only two options that C.S. Lewis told us we had anyways, is either you worship Jesus as God or you call him a lunatic and consider him much worse. So in verse one, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Skipping to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So this text, I, I, I get really excited with this text. One, because it's just a beautiful piece of literature. You have this imagery of Jesus being the word. And, and we kind of have to wonder, why is Jesus described by John as the word? Um, and I think he explains it in saying that, that Jesus is God. He's the creator of all things. And, and in him, the fullness of God is made known. It, it's pretty exciting to think, of Jesus being the word. I heard this text preached um, a couple years ago, and I'm just going to completely steal it from a man who's older than me, wiser than me, and much godlier than me. And, and he described it as Jesus is the word in a sense that when you have a really unique experience that you want others to know about, maybe you had some food that was exceptional, or you went to a sporting event or a concert that was overwhelming, and you try to describe it to your friends. But there's just not that word that you have to fully describe the experience you had. And in the same way that throughout the history before Jesus was made manifest in the flesh, God had revealed himself to his people, but not fully. And in Jesus, God used the word that was missing for the first part of history to fully reveal himself to his people. Jesus makes known the unknowable and mysterious nature of God. In Jesus, the love and kindness, wisdom and justice, patience and power are made known. Moreover, Jesus created all things. And, and so, so this is where we go to Colossians 1 and start in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. And, and already from reading John 1, we can have a better understanding of what that means. In Jesus, we, things have been made visible that were formerly invisible about God. In Jesus' flesh, things about God that were never fully known have now been made known. And, and so what we're getting at, it comes later when it says, he's the firstborn of all creation. Not to say that Jesus was created, but Paul's referring to the right of the firstborn, that Jesus has the right over all creation. It is his inheritance. 
He says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So nothing exists or has ever existed apart from his sovereign and intentional creation of it. Understanding Jesus as the eternal God and creator of the universe is essential to understanding why, we, why he's worthy of our worship and why ultimately at Sojourn we're all about him. We're all about Jesus because we believe he's the creator of the universe. We believe he is the God, not just a God or some part of God, but we believe Jesus is the God of the universe. And in verses 16 and 17, we see that. And we also see that he created all things for himself. It says that, that all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus created all things for himself. The created order, including heaven, earth, the galaxies, plants, animals, angels, and humans are all constantly sustained in existence for the glory and kingship of Jesus to be made known and for worship to be had. Even as creation rebels against his goodness, God continues to uphold it. We see that in verse 17 when it says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so even as creation rebels against his goodness, God continues to uphold it. When he was arrested, when he was beaten, when he was mocked, and eventually when he was murdered on a cross, in that he could have ceased the existence of the universe, but rather in love and in kindness and in patience, he continued to uphold it. And this is really crazy to think about. Even right now, Jesus is consistently upholding and sustaining our existence. At any moment, he could just stop. And it wouldn't be that mountains would crumble and buildings would shake, but it would just be that everything was gone. Right now, God is sustaining the universe by his creative word. And, and, so, and then we can, t- we can go out farther and say that the sun revolves around, uh, the earth revolves around the sun. Let's not go to the sun revolving around the earth. <laughs> We're a few centuries past that belief. But the earth revolves around the sun every 365.25 days. And, and it has really since, since the earth has begun to orbit the sun. And why is that? Because Jesus consistently upholds the physical laws that he created. He consistently upholds the order of nature for it to continue to work in such a way that is good, in such a way that allows life. Even when he could not, he does. And so then we move into verse 18, and it says, for, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church. And so we've, we've established that Jesus is the creator of the universe. We've established that he upholds all of creation. We have, we have established that not only does he create and uphold creation, but he does this all for himself, for his glory. And then he's called the head of the church. And we're like, what's this have to do with anything? Like, we're talking about these really lofty titles of God, and now he's being called the head of the church. And in prep preparation, I thought that a rather trivial title as well. When I came to this verse and preparing, I was like, man, I don't know where to go from here. We're talking about these things about Jesus that are so big and grand, and now he's described as the head of the church. And so I went to 
uh, a sermon that was preached in 1868 by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who's probably the greatest Bible teacher of all time. And this is what he said about it, which was very humbling to me. He said, as if to show us that this title of the head of the church is to be held in highest esteem, it is here placed in connection with the loftiest honors of our Lord Jesus. In the same breath, the Son of God is styled the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the creator of all existence, and then the head of the body, the church. We dare not, therefore, think lightly of this title, nor do we hesitate to assert that any levity with regard to it would be as disgraceful as the profane use of any other name for our divine Lord. So Spurgeon speaks rightly about the brevity of this title. In our last series, Marshall Marshall continually said that we are not only saved from something as Christians, but we're saved into a people. And, And if we're saved into a people, that is the church. And the church is the people to whom and through whom God reveals himself. However, if the head were removed from this body, the church, it would surely be dead. There is no glory in a headless body because the head is the glory of the body. In the head resides the leadership, the beauty, and the countenance of the body. Jesus' headship of the church is the reason that we as sojourners necessarily must be all about Jesus. Jesus is the reason we were created and for his glory we were called into his people. Jesus is our identity. And our body is only glorious when Jesus is at the top of it. On our own, we have no glory to be beheld, but with Christ as our head, we are a beautiful revelation of God's own glory, his goodness, his grace, his power, his love, his patience, his kindness. So moving on when the text says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything in everything he might be preeminent, we see that Jesus is truly first in all things. He was first in existence. He's first in power. He's first in authority in the church. He's first in grace. He's first in love. He was the first to raise from the dead. And so so Paul writes that in everything he might be preeminent, it just means that in everything he might surpass all others. Jesus is first in all things, that in everything he might prove himself to be first in all things. (laughs) As the one that is the preeminent being, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. There's no part of God that was not dwelling in Jesus as a man. And, and, And let us not reduce Jesus to only 33 years of being a man, when clearly the scripture's calling him to be the eternal God of creation. But, but as a man in the flesh, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It was not a painstaking task for the Father and the Holy Spirit to allow the fullness of God to dwell in Jesus. It was a joy and a pleasure. And this further emphasizes the importance of understanding Jesus as God. If we miss that Jesus is God, we miss everything. If you come to sojourn week in and week out and miss that we are worshiping Jesus of Nazareth as the God of the universe, we have failed you. If you miss that, 
our purpose of being here in Montrose is moot. But if you get it, if you understand that Jesus is the God of the universe, if you are given ears to hear that, eyes to see that, and a mind to believe that, then we're going somewhere. Then we're moving somewhere. Then we have purpose as this church under the headship of Jesus. And so thus far, we've established that G- what, who Jesus is, his characteristics. He's God. He's the creator. He sustains the universe. But really, other than the rather small task of creating the universe and sustaining it for all of eternity and existence, we haven't really talked about what Jesus in the flesh as a human has done. But we're getting there. In verse 19, it says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then moving to verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And before we we really get into this, first, we see that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, but also the fullness of God was pleased to use Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. So once again, let us not look at the cross and say that that was plan B, or that God in some way begrudgingly reconciled creation through a death on the cross. If we read the New Testament faithfully, we see that the cross was always plan A. From from before creation, God desired to reconcile it through the cross. But in this, we also see that it says to reconcile to himself all things. And I think we we could get into really dangerous waters here if we don't address an issue and then move on. And so... I think it's necessary to point out that it's a wrong way to read the text and, and say that, that when it says reconcile all things, it does not mean that all people will be saved through Jesus' death. This would be a conclusion that we could draw if we were lazy in interpretation and failed to read the rest of the passage. Verse 23 clearly points to a striving in the faith, specifically in the gospel of Jesus, for reconciliation. The whole sweep of the New Testament points clearly to a message that Jesus is the only way to have relationship with the Father. But if it says reconcile all things to himself, what does that mean? Well, we have to look at the word reconcile. And reconcile, um, we think, often means that, that that means God is bringing things into himself. And in a sense it is, but most specifically, reconcile here means that God is going to be consistent with all creation. He's going to be congruent with his character. But God's character is not only one of love and grace, which it surely is, but it is also one of mercy and truth. It's also one that upholds justice. It's also one that hates evil. And so, yes, it is true that all things will be reconciled and made consistent with God through Jesus. And that will either be through the peace from the blood of the cross, the wrath-absorbing death of Jesus, or it will be from those who have rebelled against God experiencing the wrath of God. And in that, God is still good, he is still just, and he is certainly still holy, and he is definitely consistent with his character in that. And that's that's not supposed to be a fire and brimstone thing. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable, but I think in order for us to really understand the grace and truth of this text, we have to establish that to move on. And so 
we're, we're now talking about what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Jesus, being the eternal God of creation who sustained it for thousands or millions or billions of years, depending upon your relatively unimportant understanding of the age of the universe, <laughs> even as creation consistently rebelled against him in wicked thoughts and deeds, put on the flesh of man and died as a criminal in order that peace might be had between man and God. Jesus quelled all rebellion. At any moment in time, at any point of egregious sin and dishonor, he could have ceased to sustain the universe's existence, but he didn't. He found it most glorifying to himself to display a love for his creation that involved suffering in its stead. Jesus did what we could never do. He perfectly obeyed. Jesus did what we could never do in the flesh, and that is absorb the wrath of God and then raise from it. (laughs) The, The cross is not just a symbolic, sacrificial death, but the cross is also a very literal time in which in which for those who believe the wrath of God towards sin was poured on him. He experienced the fullness of the suffering that we deserve. He experienced the fullness of the discipline that we deserve in order that he might make peace through the blood of his cross. And so then the question is, if this is true, that that Jesus created all of the universe in order that he might glorify himself through redeeming a rebellious people and offering it hope, what is our response? I think there are two groups of people in here who will have a different response. First, there's the believer. And we'll address that response first. For the believer, it says, And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so I think to understand the grace and the goodness of the cross, we have to understand who we were before our encounter with the grace and the goodness of the cross. Believer, before Jesus saved you, you were alienated from the truth about God, and in fact, you were hostile towards it in your mind and in your deeds, which were evil constantly. But he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Believer, formerly you were an enemy to God, and now he has graciously done what you couldn't do, what you could never earn in making you a friend. Before you were an orphan without hope, and now you are an adopted son or daughter full of hope. Before you were only mean and evil, and now you are being transformed into the likeness and the goodness and the grace of Jesus that you might make him known to all of the world for the rest of eternity. Before, we were hopeless, and now we have hope in the gospel. And so for the believer, hold fast. Verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Hold fast. Continue moving forward. Continue believing even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense, even when everything around you tells you that it's foolish. Continue believing these truths that we proclaim about Jesus. 
that he is God, that he's your only hope, that he created you for his glory, and he was pleased to reconcile you in his body of death. Let's hold fast. Our other response is very simply, but very powerfully worship. If Jesus is who this text says he is, our endless refrain should be, all to Jesus I surrender. Glory, glory, hallelujah. If this is true about Jesus, all of our life should continually be an echo of his praise. We should, like the angels, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All the earth is full of his glory. And also, our response should be repentance. We should continually turn away from the hostility in mind that we are prone to, to the evil deeds that we are prone to, and to the alienation from truth that we desire at times. We should turn away from those things as the people of God, not as individuals, but as the people under the headship of Christ and and press forward in obedience, in worship, that this neighborhood or your neighborhood, if you do not live here, might know him. Because at Sojourn, we are all about Jesus, not because it makes us feel really good to be all about Jesus, but because we're convinced that there's nothing else to be all about, and that everyone else should likewise be all about Jesus, lest they be hopeless orphans, hostile in mind. And then there's the response for those of you who wouldn't consider yourself a believer, who wouldn't say that these things are true about Jesus. You... All of us, regardless of our belief or unbelief, came in with preconceived notions of who Jesus is. And for the unbeliever, I would just invite you to consider these things. I would invite you to press into this community and ask questions where we can be long-suffering with you and patient, where we can encourage you towards grace and truth. And ultimately, we would invite you, as we do, to humbly bow before him as sinners unworthy and proclaim his lordship. And so this morning as we go and receive communion and worship and eat together, let us remember that in all things he is preeminent. Let us not make much of ourselves so that we can therefore make much of him who is worthy of being made much of. Let us be truly all about Jesus. Let's pray.